0: Hello there, this is Abhivardhan from ISAIL, and this is kind of an intro episode for you if you wish to know about our new podcast for internationalism, which we are launching by the name of Indus Think. Now, what is Indus Think? Is it related to the Indus Valley Civilization, or is it just related to something like Indian polity or Indian culture? Well, yes, it is related. And this podcast by Internationalism specifically is dedicated about discussing decoloniality in Indian polity, Indian foreign policy, but apart from decoloniality, also discussing some nuanced and, you know, rare issues of Indian society, Indian culture, much about Indian anthropology and maybe some issues of Indian policy and Indian polity wherever necessary we may discuss economics we may discuss international relations and how you know how india is projecting itself as a country as a as a as a minor power right now so let me give you a gist about this podcast per se so we have to understand that uh, there are always forces which are centripetal and uh, as a res- you know In reciprocity we have something which is centrifugal so something which is centripetal is not problematic because when it is centripetal you actually have a source code something like that at the center and you can handle it but when you have something at the centrifugal level the question is how much can you handle out of it and can you really endure it that's the biggest question you should always ask to yourself so The concept of this podcast is very different. Uh, Unlike other podcasts which deal with Indic issues, obviously, through the lens of politics only, the objective of this podcast is that we don't wish to deal Indian philosophy and Indian culture just because there is a political framework or a political momentum in India right now. We wish to deal issues of decoloniality in indian polity and foreign policy because it is not just an academic issue neither it is just some not uh, not just because it is just some academic issue or not just because it is some need of the hour but but it's also because uh this is something which concerns india and in a good sense this must be discussed so this podcast will be uh focusing on thus these kind of issues and it will be in many, many frontiers per se. I mean, it's not going to be like limited to, it's not going to be a political podcast completely. The focus will be that it focuses on issues which are beyond politics, beyond the mainstream narratives, because the focus is not to uh, share unreasonable narratives with which are just hollow and have no meaning, but to share ideas which are reasonable enough as far as the speakers think, and if people wish to accept it, it is up to them, if people wish to reject them, it is up to them. So now, let me give you an intro. Since I have given you the intro of this talk, I'll explain you about the upcoming discussion that we are going to have. Now what happens is that uh, every culture and civilization has its own roots, has its own way of growth, and uh, you know, based on that states become, according to Ian Morris's works, Professor Ian Morse's works, they can become high-end states or they can become low-end states. We can take the examples of high-end states and low end states very well. Uh, there were low-end states like the Soviet Union, but there were high end, there are high-end states like Israel and the, Uni- the United States of America. Uh, when it comes to India and global governance, India is already trying to represent itself as a very interesting development-centric power. Uh, it has already done in terms of many things from vaccine support to 90 plus countries to getting a seat in the UN Security Council for two years to, I believe, getting uh, executive board memberships in various bodies, in some of the bodies in the United Nations, to even supporting the South-South Initiative of the UN. So in that case, even India's foreign policy approach has been very soft and very interesting. However, the hard power aspect of India is also very Delightful and I think must be discussed when it comes to defense, when it comes to Navy. Even the most buzz, the, the biggest buzzword which we hear from the is a foreign policy establishment in India, uh, which is known as Quad, often known as or popularly known as the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, is something which is at the heart of Indian foreign policy, which represents India's vision for the Indo Pacific. But beyond Indo Pacific, beyond uh, uh, Joe Biden administration's vision, or beyond uh, the Indochina tussle and Galwan, or beyond the Indo-Russian relationship, there are also some aspects within the internal polity of India which are untouched and which are not understood. So what happens is that soft power and hard power are usually separate, but obviously at some level they are linked. For example, uh, privacy law is something which comes into soft power, because If you are in a conflict-ridden country, then expectation of privacy is just nothing. It's impossible. But if you have a high-end state like the US, then you should demand for privacy because then it is a reasonable thing to do. Although the right to privacy is not a bad right, it's a reasonable right. Uh, What happens with uh, the other rights is also the same with privacy. You should demand for them if they are necessary. Now when you are dealing with hard power the concept of security comes in and security is not just about a not uh, not just about uh, a vague notion of national security it's it also uh, or just uh, peddling conspiracy theories it simply means that security is an aspect of rule of law and law and order if you need tranquility and peace if you need economic growth you you should have a good army and as well as your police Because the police is at a local level while the army army handles your borders and other aspects, which is maritime, airspace and so forth. So, one thing is for sure that soft power and hard power are distinctively very different. However, they have some ample coherence because obviously they will be cohesive, they are connected. That is how exactly a government works in a state and that is how a state is created. You can get many examples from Europe to Asia to Africa and you can see the history of states from Ghana to Nigeria to People's Republic of China to South Korea and even India, of course. Now, uh, since we were talking about centripetalism and centripetal forces and centrifugal forces, one thing which becomes a very important aspect of Indian polity is that Much of its foreign policy and public policy issues are something which are mostly post-colonial. When we say post-colonial, it simply means that, first of all, you are decolonizing yourself, you are ending your coloniality so much so that you alleviate people out of poverty, you develop them, you give them a chance, and then you give them the nativity they want. Right? Right? So decoloniality occurs in many forms and steps, but uh, we have to understand that uh, in the upcoming discussion which we are going to have, the upcoming first episode of Indus Think, one of the interesting aspects of this discussion which might be happening very soon is that decoloniality is not just about colonialism at digital and other levels. Because colonialism, in general, has to do with ethnocentrism. So, for example, there was a concept known as white man's burden. The West used to impose white man's burden on any country they wished to have because uh, they used the policy of divide and rule. They used to rule those places as protectorates or colonies. Even the United States did it against the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Many a times, many coups were planned and so forth. It was always done. In fact, even India was a hub for CIA and KGB spies for whatever they wish to do and many people in India were used to be spied. India was not a safe country in that sense earlier in those old times in the 20th century. However, when you decolonize, what you need to understand is that ethnocentrism also has to be prevented. But at the same time, you should focus on what damages have been incurred to the host culture which is represented. Now, in the case of India, it's not one dogma so we have to understand that culture is not equal to dogma dogma and culture are very different which means that culture itself has a very integral aspect now when it comes to indian civilization it is very different from the western civilization because the western civilization first has its origins in the indo-european civilization which starts from uh, uh, the indian subcontinent to straight away straight away to the roman empire which was collapsed when christianity came in now uh, the umbilical cord which connects the which connects india and europe is the ottoman empire part which is turkey greece cyprus and all that stuff near the mediterranean sea that uh, and if you see uh, the rec- uh, one of the recent statements by india's permanent representative mr Trimurthy. Trimurthy. As Trimurthy, he says that west asia is a very important part of india's foreign policy it represents uh, a very important connotation of india's civilization it has a civilizational aspect so even if there is a shia nation known as the islamic republic of iran civilization itself as a concept still stays among the iranian people regardless of the fact if they are muslims or not so the idea of a civilizational state is something which is very vast so, the idea is that in this podcast, and obviously from the first episode, we are going to discuss in the, the question of India as a civilizational state, uh, because uh, when we discuss India's uh, nature of being a constitutional state, we already discussed that in our podcast series like Indian Integrals. We have discussed already on the basic structure doctrine and constitutional morality, and obviously the accountability of the judiciary and other organs of government. So, as a constitutional state, if you want to know what uh what can be understandings and views? Uh you can definitely refer to Indian integrals because in Indian integrals, that's what we exactly do. We discuss avenues of India as a constitutional state at public uh, at a public policy level. In our foreign policy podcast, Global Hint, our entire focus is on international relations and international law, and we get on various interesting issues. in our In our last discussion with Mr. Salvatore Babones, what we exactly did was discussing various strategies on the Indo-Pacific. So we discussed the American strategy, the French strategy, the German strategy, the UK strategy, and even the Chinese strategy on Indo-Pacific, quote unquote, as far as a 2013 document by the People's Liberation Army, which obviously, according to the speaker, was a Wikipedia page in that discussion. Now, beyond the question, of what we are considering, whether India is a constitutional state, whether India is foreign policy. In this discussion, we will be completely focusing on India as a civilizational state. So, discussions are much awaited from every, every side and we are more than happy to have criticism and it's perfectly okay. Now, getting on the main point of uh, what we are intending to discuss, uh, we have to understand that uh, ethnocentrism is a wider issue and it's not about offending somebody it is just about imposing narratives now what happens is that there is no problem in having narratives i think every civilization tries to create its own narratives Uh, the, the idea of narratives always has existed and always will exist i mean there is no end in the existence of narratives but the problem is that you should not in a world like the one we are living in right now in the 21st century limit yourself to just narratives now what happens is that the idea of a real politic which has unfortunately been dominated by only and only the the west led by the united states of america uh this real politic does not have a very good model for the world despite the fact that we have the united nations we have the european union we have all these international bodies the problem is that these narratives sometimes are self-destructive. For example, the, con- the the concept of transitional justice. Transitional justice is what? It simply means that uh, you, wish to have, you wish to have justice for people who have been oppressed, particularly minorities under international law who have been affected. Now, what happens is that regime changes and a um, clear misuse of the concept of transitional justice using the idea of responsibility to protect under international law, espoused by former uh, U.S. Ambassador at the UN, Samantha Power, is something which we should always ponder upon because the problem with the responsibility to protect and transition justice is that these two concepts assume that the West is the best to do so and they have all the civilized authority to take action because they believe that they are the civilized and the others are not. Although I do not think that it happens at every level, but still that has been a big problem for the Western civilization. And That's why it's very bizarre when the European Union comes with a, comes for an investment deal with the Chinese without even having investment courts to be established for any labor law issues or for that matter, any compliance issues. Even on the issue of The treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China, Xinjiang, nothing has been done at a principal level uh, by the West. I think uh, the the government which tried to do was the US government under Donald Trump, but it seems that Joe Biden is not going to proceed much further. Uh, India does not have any stance on it, but that's a different issue altogether. So the, the problem is that the real politic has to understand, and I'm talking about the whole world in general, that. The idea of power and competence has to be separated but not detached the umbilical cord between uh, power and competence must stay afloat it must not uh, it must not be broken it must not stay fall apart once it falls apart the notion of state ends sovereignty is affected and it's not good for the international community at all What does it mean is that civilizational states, which is a new concept emerging. In fact, European Union also tries to represent itself as a civilizational state, although I know that European Union is an international organization under international law, but still it tries to espouse the idea of Europa, whether it is led by Christian evangelists, or European socialists, or European libertarians, or whatever, modern conservatives or classic liberals whatsoever. All of them espouse Europe as a civilizational state, uh, and uh, I believe that when we say Europe as a civilizational state, they should also add the United States and Canada into it because they also have colonized in U- the U.S. and Canada for their own means. So therefore, it's a, it's, a full, it's a whole, it's a whole cluster of Western civilization in totality. However, countries in Eastern Europe may or may not agree with them. The, the Russians may 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 or, may or may not agree with them. Because, the you know, the Russians represent their own form of civilization, the Russian civilization, led by the Tsars and then by the communists, led by Lenin, Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev and so on. But there's one more civilization which we ignore, which is the Chinese civilization, the Middle Kingdom, of course. After the Chinese, we have the Africans, you know, but when we say Africans, people are very discriminatory because we say Africans. So, yeah, OK, fine. It's all about poverty and all. No, it's not true. Uh, within Africans, you have various ethnicities, you have hundreds of languages in, and thousands of tribes across. Uh, you have countries which represent their own civilizational values per se. What unites them is Africa because of the simple fact that a western model of African Union has been imposed. However, African Union itself is a very different organization and still has to you know, show its teeth. It does not have teeth, it does not have a Useful power construct therefore African Union is not as strong as European Union or NATO or for that matter uh, You know, Shanghai cooperation or the United Nations per se. Now the UN itself is not a civilizational uh, Construct at all. It is a Western construct More imperial because of the simple nature that American international law British international law and European international law led by French then by the French particularly has been dominating the world that is how the concepts of transition justice and other concepts were created it was ju- and the problem is that the chinese aspect of international law cannot work in united nations because it is so authoritarian and it is as we say the xi jinping era it's so authoritarian that it's not going to help you in terms of governance aspects transparency and accountability has been a very important aspect of the western model of liberalism or i would say the mises form of libertarianism conservatism And you need that form of governance because that is exactly what the West is meant for. So the Western civilization is in a a dilemma right now. Then there is an issue of, uh, 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 I would say, democratic socialism and cultural Marxism in the United States led by Black Lives Matter and other organizations who also are trying to subvert the UN per se. Now, the problem is both of them are wrong because first the blm side does not understand how how the world works they want to see everything in the lens of racism which is not actually a correct term to say now in the term of india as a civilizational state what are the aspirational attributes now i would love to discuss it but in the discussion with the coming upcoming speaker who will whose details will be released on the internationalism website and on all the social media portals where we are except facebook shortly I will be in detail discussing about decoloniality in Indian foreign policy, but at least for now, I can suggest that uh, India as a civilizational state is not just about, you know, excessive humility and giving and giving and giving and not taking and taking and taking, but India as a civilization can represent better notions of power and competence. That's exactly what we can expect because you have examples like the Mauryan empire, the cholas, and even the Vijayanagara empire and I think if we take better examples and we show how this works, India as a civilizational state can actually espouse better models in upholding human rights and transforming international law because we have to understand the notion of sovereignty is very central to international law and there are very few countries who are going to contribute to effectively make international law work. Uh, The United States was one of the luckiest countries to do it but if the united states does not have clear policies and it's going to dominate itself and show its imperial values then united states will be a country which cannot be trusted by anybody in the world including india when it comes to the quad and many things therefore uh, it is important for a country like india and not just india even in the asean you have countries like japan and singapore who which can do it so india can also be one of the one of the one of the people Obviously, um, uh, India is also a part of the G4, which is obviously the group of four for uh, the UN Security Council permanent membership request. They have been following and doing the campaigns for long under their manifestos. Uh, Germany also can be a country, but again, the vision of Germany has to be put into question how Germany is going to behave. I'm not getting into the details of how Germany behaves, but yeah, Uh, India, Brazil... Uh, These countries are very significant. France is a very interesting country, per se. Uh, And yes, to add it, Japan is a very important country, of course. Now, the only thing which I can say at the end of this recording is that once, once you come up for a discussion with us, do read about India's civilizational attributes and you can find it through histories. Proper history is written by verified archaeologists and anthropologists. But at the same time, understand it at an experiential level. Uh, How are you going to face it? Because the purpose of the podcast is not to share narratives about India. It is about examining the narratives and examining the practicalities in terms of India as a civilizational state, as we said in the podcast. So the idea is that at at an essential level, At a proper level. Please do focus on. We will be. Because that's what we are going to do. Um, That is. Number one. Basically. Letting the condition. And understanding. Of how. Number one. As I said. About notions of power and competence. The second aspect of. The second aspect is when soft power and hard power merge because of the problem of fifth generation warfare which is known as information and perception warfare how india is going to represent itself and how india is going to tackle that kind of warfare because then soft power and hard power will be kind of mixing up together because and that is problematic because when soft power and hard power mix together it becomes very dilemmatic and sometimes traumatic for any society and individual. So India as a nation-state, as a civilizational state, has to protect itself in the sense and has to show forth what can it do. Now, it cannot happen through just by reading the Vedas and the Upanishads. It can actually happen by applying the Vedas, Upanishads and the Vedanta in a practical manner by reading them, analyzing them and then providing solutions. But for that, you also need an anthropological understanding and not just a sociological undertaking. Balance both of them and then come up with something. So that's what this podcast is all about. We will be discussing uh, unknown and maybe unclear aspects of Indian foreign policy and Indian civilization. And in this podcast, I hope so that meanwhile when it would be possible i would be more than happy to share uh, some of my poems or some of uh, my interesting uh, works per se which i've written since uh, i i write poems in both hindi and english and i would be more than happy to share them as well but for now or for some time this podcast will be entirely on foreign policy aspects and how foreign policy works what are the aspects of decoloniality? So the first discussion of India's thing will be on decoloniality in Indian foreign policy. It will be happening with Mr. Richard Sharma, a media critic and policy expert, and Mr. Karthike Mishra, a Martinian and a lawyer. Now, uh, this discussion will be happening on 6th of March at 4pm Indian Standard Time. It will be broadcasted on YouTube Live at Internationalism Global Podcast on YouTube. So do subscribe us on Internationalism Global Podcast on YouTube. And we see you there. Thank you so much for listening to this um, bonus premiere intro and we see you soon. We see you live and let's see how the discussion goes. Thank you.